Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, we all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Greenball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Groundbuster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at greenballtires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiries. Welcome to DBR Racing Products, the leader in 3D modeling and innovations. Since 2015, they have been revolutionizing the industry, starting with their groundbreaking YFZ450R battery boxes. But they didn't stop there. They have continued to push the boundaries, constantly improving their design with each new version. In 2018, they introduced the game-changing Vortex EXO cage, specifically designed to securely hold the Vortex ECU in a safe and sturdy location. This breakthrough innovation ensures your ECU stays protected even in the toughest racing conditions. At DBR, they understand that every detail matters. That's why they also offer an array of essential products to enhance your racing experience. Their spark plug hold downs keep your engine firing at peak performance while their LTR breather boxes ensure optimal ventilation for your machine. Their LT250 engine skid plates are a must have for those seeking unmatched protection. Engineered to shield your engine from impacts and rough terrain, they provide the ultimate defense for your ATV. But that's not all. They've developed ProPeg mounts that allow you to use TRX450R Nerf bars, giving you greater control and maneuverability on the track. To explore their full range of innovative products and learn more about DBR Racing, visit their website at www.dbratv.com. You can also reach them directly at 507-828-1233. Their knowledgeable team is ready to assist you with any questions or inquiries. DBR Racing Products, where innovation meets performance, unleash the power within you. Are you looking for the best suspension technology for your sport ATV? Look no further than Elka Suspension, the industry leader in sport ATV suspension technology. With championship wins in prestigious events such as the Dakar Rally, SCORE, Best in the Desert, ATV MX, Cross Country, and Works, Elka Suspension has established itself as the go-to choice for athletes and enthusiasts alike. But they don't just stop at ATVs. They're constantly expanding into new markets, including UTVs, trucks, SUVs, pit bikes, snowmobiles, and more. Their commitment to innovation 
and quality means they're always looking to improve and adapt so you can enjoy a smooth ride wherever you go. Want to learn more about what Elka Suspension can do for you? Visit their website at elkasuspension.com or give them a call at 450-655-4855. They will always be happy to answer your questions and help you find the perfect suspension solution for your needs. Brandon Fraser, welcome to ATV Talk. How are you, sir? Good, man. How are you? Good, good. Hey, thank you for taking some time with us. I know that uh, you're a busy guy and it, it takes a little bit to get it scheduled in, but I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Uh, obviously, I, I think you uh, mentioned to me, I don't know, I'd say almost a year ago now that you want to do a podcast with me. And my schedule, it, it's honestly pretty busy and it's pretty crazy. Um, there's no doubt about it. So uh, just make time and do a podcast. I've Personally, I've never done a podcast before. So my first ever one. Well, I'm glad it's with me. Thank you very, thank oh, you yeah. very much. Hey, oh, yeah. um, you know, I'm kind of new to following the four by four stuff. It's only been in the last few years. You know, I, I was friends with a couple of the guys in the in the past years, but to really watch you guys, I mean, there's some extreme talent going on there riding those machines. Yeah, uh, I'd really say that, man, these past, uh, I don't know, I've been in the class for three seasons now, three full national seasons, and um, I don't know, the pace, it seems like it keeps getting faster and faster. Uh I mean, it really, really shows everybody's been putting in the work and everybody just seems like in that class, they just keep wanting it to get faster in that class for sure. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, in the little bit of time that I've been watching it, man, I thought Landon Wolf was the guy that was never going to get beat. And then yeah. uh, you and Cody come out there and just start beating up on him. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> you know? Maybe yeah. I don't know what I think I know. But oh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. I want to go back in time a little bit with you, if you don't mind, about yeah. your exposure or start into the ATV world. Ooh, man, we can go way back. Uh, I started when I was actually five years old. So, I mean, racing's really all I know, and it's been in my blood ever since. Um, but actually, my dad was actually the first one to really get, I mean, into the ATV racing loop. Um, he started racing uh, the local series here that we have of FTR um, and kind of got into it a little bit, got in with his friends. Um, and then next thing you know, I turned the day I turned five was my first race. I can actually even race. So I raced the first race that I could um, and did that. And the rest is honestly history. I mean, after that we did, we were doing the local series. Um, I won a few FTR championships, our local series here. Um, and we actually found out by a couple of buddies that there's a national series and we should, yep, I won a couple of championships in local series. And then a uh, buddy told us about the national series, uh, GNCC. Um, so we decided to start running that. That was, and what, how old was I? I was probably eight at the time. Uh, eight years old, uh, we did the national series and the the 70 CVT class. Uh, I don't think the first year I won the championship, but the second year I won the championship. And then obviously progressed through the years. 
um, racing guys like Hunter Hart, um, Levi Cohen, um, man, all them fast guys in there uh, that are still around today. Uh, then we moved up to the front line in 2013. Um, rode, rode, rode my first uh, race in the front line, or first year in the front line uh, in the youth division. And then I ended up, I think I was the number four uh, that season. Um, I think I was behind Hunter Hart, John Galata. Uh, and there was another kid, I forget his name. Um, but I ended up that we actually took a hiatus from GNCC. Um, we just did the local series, uh, really didn't run. We ran the first three Southern rounds. I'm from Florida. Um, so being able to travel to all the races is a lot. So, uh, we decided that after we won the national championship, we'll take a break. Um, but we did run the first few rounds of GNCC cause those are the Southern rounds. Um, and then, um, you won a national title, uh, in what class did you win that in? Uh, that was the, it's the front line of the youth race. Uh, back then, I believe it was called like the 90 unlimited or something like that. Um, uh, that was back before it was like production rule. So you had to run production fullers um, and stuff like that. Now, obviously, the front lines, most of uh, 120, Yamaha 125s with 150 dirt bike motors in them. Back in the day, we were not allowed to run uh, dirt bike motors in our fullers. So everybody was on production ATVs. Did you race 450s? Yes, actually, I did. Um, so when I first turned 16, I went to a four by four for a brief second. Um, I raced the four by four A class for a little bit uh, for like three or four rounds. Um, I believe this was like in 2017, 2018 area um, and uh, had some bad luck. Uh, so broke down quite a bit. Um, didn't have the greatest luck on the four by four side of things. Um, so we jumped over to the. 450 and uh actually ran xc2 for a few races um for, of the national series and uh we we did pretty good i got on the podium once and had a couple bad races cracked the piston just some couple issues so we decided against running the full season of gncc again um so we didn't come back until 2020 when we ran a full season again and that was on a four by four and so from 2000 go ahead so from so from 2014 to 2020 i took a break um from the gncc series just running a few races a year yep because uh how gncc works is they normally do the like the southern it was like the Southern, like four or five races. We normally did those uh, because you could drive to those. Um, they're a pretty easy ride. They're only eight or 10 hours from Florida. So we would normally do those just to, just to race them and kind of have a little bit of fun, something different than our local series. And then we'd go back to our local series and race those. How aggressive is your local series? Um, it, it's got to be pretty good because you have speed that you carried right over into the Nationals. Um, so th there must be some good terrain there. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the FTR series has some really good riders. Um, there's no doubt about that. Uh, we've had uh, 
I don't know if you know, but uh, Taylor Kaiser back in the day, he was from Florida. Um, and I believe I would be the second uh, pro writer from Florida to ever make it to a pro level. Um, I think it was me and Taylor Kaiser was the only one that's been from Florida. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's some definitely some fast riders in the local series around here. Wow. I mean, that's, it's impressive. Do you like, uh, or have you ever done anything besides, you know, cross country? Have you ventured into motocross at all or anything like that? Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, uh, we ventured over to motocross. Um, now this is when I was young, this was probably when I was 10 years old or so, um, 10 or 11. Um, we did a couple, we actually did a couple seasons of the motocross here in our, uh, local Florida. Um, but really never, never did the national stuff for motocross. I've always liked the cross country side um, rather than the motocross side. Obviously when you're a kid, you like anything dealing with footballers. So, um, but the XC thing was more my cup of tea. And and you gravitated towards the four by fours. Uh, why just, was it a natural fit or is it, is it, is there other reasons? Um. I wouldn't say it was like a natural fit. Uh, it was just like a decision. Um, my dad's a really big part of my program. Um, and he actually had a four by four sitting in the corner. Uh, so obviously that allowed me to decide if I wanted to ride a four by four and decide to hop on it. Um, and that kind of thing. And actually back in the day, back in the day for me, I guess you would say 2018, 2017, the four by four, uh, Pro was really, really big. They had um, the players team. They had a Can-Am team. Um, so it was like factory teams. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that it, it, it's had a number of factory support from Yamaha to Kawasaki. 4x4 stuff has had multiple different factory exposure. With Yamaha was in there for a while. Kawasaki was in there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really, really big. And uh, I think it was like 2008, 2009, which also the 450 part of it was really big back in the day at that same time time period. Um, but obviously the 450 has declined and also has the 4x4 um, with the production of ATVs and stuff like that. But the entries in the series at all, overall are going up. Yeah. Every everything's going up, but the production of ATVs is not. Um, I don't know what their deciding factor is. I don't know if they don't see the money in the, the racing part of it. Um, because obviously that's a lot, there's a lot more to it than just the racing. Um, but I mean it it shows for sure. Well, I talk a lot to Joe Tully from ATV on demand, and when he goes to a uh intro of a bike or where they're, you know, whatever kind of deal it is for the media to show up and, and look at the new models, he beats up on all the manufacturers and when they're going to, you know, have another, you know, sport ATV and they're, they, they tell him that there's no demand. And he goes, you people obviously know nothing. Mm -hmm. Aftermarket sales, you know, like the secondhand sales of ATVs yep. is off the charts. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of companies out there that make parts for these four-wheelers. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but it's just that I don't know what it is. It's I don't know if they don't see something that we all do. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure. And if ATVs are dying, 
I'm in trouble because I'm so busy. I can't even see straight. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah, they just keep, I, I keep getting machines to work on, whether it be modern day or old school. Um, they just, they just keep coming. And I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to put them all now. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think that. Go ahead. I think it's the same thing with uh, Santo Derisi. I've been working with him for the past year. And I mean, it's like his stuff's just growing as well. I mean, he's getting more fullers this season. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, he does a good job. And yeah. if you do a good job and people, you have good customer service and you're, you're helpful, people are going to come yep. because there's less and less of us that want to work on them. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. When you picked, did you pick the Can-Am or was, was it a, a, a machine of choice or was it because it's the best machine at the given moment? Um, so in 2017, 2018, we did think about going the Polaris route. Um, that's when Polaris was big in the GNCC, um, and Can-Am was battling. They had a like battle going on. Um, there was a point we were thinking about doing a Polaris. Now, obviously, now we do know that the Can-Am is the machine that will prolong a Polaris right now. Um, now, that doesn't mean that Polaris may make a machine next year and it competes with the Can-Am. But right now, the Can-Am Renegade is the machine to be on if you're running a 4 by 4 Do you think it hurt the, the series at all that they dropped the 850? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't think so. Um, because a lot of people do, uh, go with the 1000. Um, now there is, there is a few, um, that do run the 850. I believe, uh, Cody actually does run an 850. Um, so yes and no. I mean, I don't think it's going to take people away because the next thing they're going to buy is the 1000. So I don't think it's going to get rid of anybody. Um, but it may just deter, I guess, you have less of an option, I guess. Now you got to go with the 1000. Yeah. And that's, you know, from obviously I talked to Cody and you, and I've talked to a couple other guys, um, you know, that have ridden the 1000 and they think it's a great machine, yep. but they also like the 850 as well. So yep. yeah. Yeah. The, both machines are really comparable. I mean, there, there's not a lot different, but there is some difference. I mean, you could run an 850 as fast as you can run a 1000. Um, it just depends on the feel you like too. At the same time, uh, the 850 just feels a little bit more nimble in some some sections, and then the 1000 just has that little bit more power to it. Um, so it's just a it's just a little bit of a different preference. Um, but obviously now with Cam getting rid of the 850, uh, now it's just going to leave everybody with the 1000. Right. And and the best guys in the class are going to be riding Can-Ams. Yep. <laughs> so so you almost have no advantage when you roll to the starting line other than Yeah, everybody's your, going to be on the same pool. Yeah. Other than your tire package, suspension package. Yeah. You guys, one thing that I noticed is nobody's doing a lot of internal work to the thousands. Is it um, the worry of how, making them unreliable or are they just fast enough now you you don't need to do anything? 
they they have plenty of power. Um, there's that we do not need anymore. Um, I mean, even like an 850, it's less powerful, but you can run it equally as fast. Horsepower. You need the the power to go from corner to corner. Um, we're not most of the time we're not going down like big straightaways, hitting jumps or anything like that, like the motocross guys are. So we don't have to really strive for a lot of power. We're trying to get from corner to corner as quick as we can. One of the things that I liked is uh, the videos. I seen some videos on your machine and and Cody's. Not much on Landon, but mostly you and Cody. I like the the stance of your machine and the way they drift through the turns. I never imagined that you could get a four by four quad to look. I mean, they almost look like trophy trucks. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean the, we do a lot of suspension work to them. I mean, from stock, I, I don't know what the ride height is, but I'm, I'm tearing one down now uh, for next season. And it looks like a, uh, it looks like a high body F250 back in the day. I mean, it looks like it's sitting way up. Um, but we, I send my shocks over to Santo, um, and they rework them. They shorten the shafts. They do all kinds of different things to them and we get the ride height a lot lower. Um, I run my bike pretty wide and low. So my bike normally handles really good and like fast, uh, open sections. When you say wide, how wide do you really want to run your machine? Is it 50 inches the max? Yes, 50 inches. I believe it's a new rule, actually. Uh, they just uh, proposed a rule of 50 inches. My bike is actually 49 and a half. So we're right on that threshold, but uh, or, or obviously the, they just made a rule this season for a 50, you have to be under 50 inches. Yeah, because I remember back in the in the early days, back probably before you were born, uh, when they wanted the bikes as narrow as they could get them. I mean, they were yep. going minus axles and, you know, inverting the wheel, yep. the wheels and doing all kinds of stuff to get them as narrow yep. as possible. Yeah. And I, I think that has a lot to do with how the tracks are nowadays. Uh, a lot of the tracks are really fast. Um, and for the most part wide, uh, but now we got some new properties this season. So obviously with new properties means newer trails, stuff like that. So, some tracks may be a little bit tighter this season. Uh, we'll just have to see and kind of play it by ear. Uh, but most of the, the GCC tracks are wide flowing kind of tracks. If you got into a situation where you did your track walk and you found that there are sections of the track that are, are too narrow, are, do you have the ability to, to narrow the machine up before the race? Um, Yes and no. Um, technically, before the race, probably not, um, because we we set our suspension up for how wide my bike is. So, for instance, we would have to change suspension plus also narrow the bike up. I run a wider wheel than most guys um, in the class, so my bike is probably going to be the widest on the line. Uh, so I kind of look for stuff like that when I am on my track walk just to always know um, what I could do in a situation. What would you, what would you think that you would do? Would you just have to look for alternate lines if the yeah. track is narrow? 
Yeah, you, what, what I would do, if there was a specific spot that I know I could not get through, I would walk back another 20 feet, 15 feet, and kind of look and just kind of get a vision of what I could do that will be almost equally as fast. Because um, this kind of depends on the situation and anything like that. I mean, every every tree, every line is different. So it's hard to compare apples to apples with that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess you got to play it by the situation, you know, yep. go from there. Have you ever thought of bringing uh, your four by four out to the West coast and trying some stuff out here? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, definitely have thought about it. Um, obviously it's, a, it's a haul for me. So, uh, but I really have thought about it and would like to do it one day. Um, don't know when that day will be, but Obviously, GNCC is our main focus, but there's no doubt I would love to go out there and try to race some of them races out there. That that would be kind of cool. Uh, I know when we were racing Best in the Desert a few years ago, they had some uh, they had some um, uh, four by four stuff going on uh, out mm-hmm. on the West Coast. You know, running against the four fifties, and they ran well. Uh, their biggest yeah. problem was the they couldn't get fuel in them fast enough um, mm-hmm. and they're clutching, you know, because of the belt limited them in certain areas. Yeah. For sure. But other than that, I mean, there were some, some sections that they were, uh, we were scared they were that fast. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I could definitely see that there's definitely limitations between a four by four and a four fifty. Um, I mean, they're not comparable. Right? There's definitely no comparison. But you can run against them, um, but there is some limitations to them for sure. What do you think? Has the new schedule came out for next year yet? It has actually. Um, how many races? Uh, Thirteen rounds a season. And you said that they had a couple of new new properties. Uh, yeah. What race did they do away with, and what race did they bring in? So we got two new properties. Um, they got rid of Tiger Run, um, which is Big Buck. Uh, that's the Big Buck property. We normally run that one two times a year. They got rid of one of them. So we still run Big Buck, but we don't run it for a second time in the season. Um, so they got rid of that one, and they added a Tennessee race, um, which I've never been to. I've never even raced in Tennessee. So we'll see how that goes. And then we actually raced at a uh, track that we raced back in back in the day uh, called Powerline Park. Um, so we're running that one this season. And where's that located? That one's in PA, Pennsylvania. Okay. Okay. Yep. So the, the uh, Tennessee round, that's pretty awesome that they, they're bringing it to Tennessee. Yep. Uh, you know, you, oh, don't, yeah. uh, you don't hear about that very often. Uh, other than they used to race in Loretta Lynn's, uh, yeah. they used to have a big race there. I don't know if they still um, ever venture that far in. Yeah, we we haven't raced Loretta Lynn's. I believe like the last time we raced it, it's been a while. I can tell you, it's been a while. 2014 area, I think, is when the last time we raced Loretta, Loretta Lynn's. I think we just outgrew that property. Yeah, I mean, with the last race of the year, you guys at one point uh there were 35,000 people there yeah that's crazy isn't it 
Yeah, the, the the last time I seen a crowd that big was in Europe at Pondevu. Yeah, I mean it's crazy how many people come to that that Ironman race. I mean it is nuts. I got to I got to go to the very first one. Yeah, you know because uh, the the namesake the namesake the the man that it was named for used to ride for my brother. Really. That's cool. Yeah, so we used to do a little bit of uh, cross-country uh, sponsorship and stuff like that. Unfortunately, when when Bob passed, um, we did it for a few more years, but it uh, being so far away, it didn't. It didn't. We just didn't keep doing it for whatever reason. It just didn't seem feasible. Yeah, for sure. Definitely understand that. Yeah, we we. Uh, I can't wait to get back there and watch one of those races live with you guys because there's just you only can catch so much in a video. Yeah, I would agree. Oh yeah, we we definitely put on some good races. I mean that four by four class and even that XE one class. I mean if you you don't you can only do so much by watching a video. I mean when when you're there, it's it's a whole different feeling. I guess you would say. Where's your favorite place to race? Ooh, favorite place to race. I don't, don't know if Florida. I have like a... Don't, don't say I don't Florida. It, it's definitely not Florida. I don't... <laughs> in my in my opinion, uh, the Florida GNCC is not a true Florida track, um, which is unfortunate, but it's part of it. Uh, but I don't know what would be my favorite, favorite race of the season. I really do like the Indiana dirt um, up there. I really do like that place. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I really have a specific place that I absolutely love. So expand on the Florida race not being more of of what you can would consider Florida. Is it is it the too much sand? Not enough sand? It it's almost too much sand. Um, in my opinion, it's too much sand. There's not enough palmettos. Um, just in my personal opinion, I. You ask anybody else, they probably say it's the worst place to ride. It has too many palmettos, all this kind of stuff. But in my opinion, I've been a Florida boy for all my life. So um, in my opinion, I think it should have like a little bit more palmettos. Um, the track's fun. Don't get me wrong. But it's not, in my opinion, a true Florida track. Okay. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna let you decide. Being raised in, in Florida, um, are you near Gators? Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, when you're not riding your four wheeler, are are you are you uh, fishing and hunting things like that? Um, fishing and hunting's really never been my thing. When I'm not racing, there's probably something wrong. <laughs> I mean, racing's literally been every part of my life. Um, there's no doubt about that. If I mean, if I'm not racing, we're either vacationing. Um, hanging out with my girlfriend or I don't know, working on an ATV or something. Really? Oh yeah. Racing is everything for me. You, you, you grow up in a literal playground and yeah. you, you're not, you're not out playing in the elements. No. Uh, I go to, I haven't been to Disney world since I've been like 10 years old. Um, I mean, none of that stuff really I go after kind of thing. We go to the beach every now and again. 
what I meant by a playground is is a wilderness wonderland with all the different kinds of wildlife that you guys get to experience in Florida that we don't have. I mean, yeah. we have earthquakes and rattlesnakes, you know, and some rocks, you know, a little bit of green, yeah. but no, nothing like you guys. Oh, yeah. No, hunting and fishing's never really been my thing. Now, I, I do it every now and again, um, but never has been like, I want to go do that every day and try to go out there and do that for sure. When you're not racing the nationals, do you still run quite a few locals? Yeah, um, I I run a I race a lot. I probably race more than most people. Um, I try to run almost three different series. I try to run the Mid East series, the, my national series, and my local series here in Florida. Which is how many races a year? Um. I probably race at least 35 weekends a year. Wow. And how many of them are doubles? Um, actually, no doubles because normally they, they separate pretty easily. Now, this weekend, I guess you would almost consider it a double. Uh, I did the GNCC banquet that was this Friday. Uh, and then I flew back with like three hours of sleep and raced Saturday at the local series in Florida. Was that the last race of the year? It was actually the, uh, no, we actually run throughout the uh, winter. Obviously, Florida, it's still warm here. So it's not like it snows or anything like that. So that would be round four out of, I think, a 14-round series. Oh, so it starts in 23 and ends in 24? Yep. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So I, I, I race almost year-round. Obviously, with my Florida series, it runs me through the winter. And then we have the Mideast and GNCC series that starts up in uh, February. So how many machines do you have? <sighs> um, let's see. I got, I got four, five Renegades right now, um, currently. And then I have two wives, uh, Z450s. Oh, so you race a 450 occasionally as well. Yep. Actually, I just raced one this past weekend. Uh, it's good to get off the 4x4s and kind of get a break from them uh, during like the off season and then get start getting back on them around January. Really? I didn't know that you raced two different machines. And yep. So are, you know, 10 or 15 of those races a year on the 450? Yep. I would say so. How do you do at your locals on the 450? I do quite well. I actually won this past weekend. Um, I, I think I do pretty good on a 450. I don't know about in national standings. I don't know. Uh, I think I could probably be a pretty good XC2 rider. Um, there's no doubt. I don't think I could be that bad in the XC2 class. Um, but not bad. What What class do you run locally on the 450? It is the front row. Um, it is like the pro division in the, the Florida series. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Yeah. And you run a four by there sometimes as well. Yes. Every now and again, I do run a four by four. Um, not very often because uh, the Florida tracks uh, are more toned for having a 450 instead of a four by four. So I try to hop on a 450 as much as I can in Florida. 
and then uh, try to run the four by four more up north and stuff like that. Means that you race so much. Uh, what do you do for training? Um, I try to train throughout the week. It's kind of hard because um, it's I have a lot of traveling. So obviously, me being in Florida, and when I race up in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, um, it, it excludes a couple of days just for travel. Um, so it's hard. Uh, I train throughout the week for the most part. I try to ride the bike at least once or twice a week. Um, and then I work out as well throughout the week. Any, any special kind of program that you put yourself under? Not really. Um, last year I did it all myself. Um, I mean, literally all myself, there was no, I didn't hire nobody to help train me. I didn't hire anything. I, it was just me and my girlfriend. We we're trying to make concoctions of working out and, uh, eating right and all that kind of stuff. Um, as most of most people don't really know that I'm actually a type one diabetic. Um, so diet and nutrition is really, really important for me than your average rider, um, for instance. So nutrition and stuff like that's really, really important for me. That being said, you really have to monitor yourself the morning of the race. With yes. What you eat, where your energy levels are, correct? Yeah, really, really have to really monitor myself the first like four or five days before the race. Um, because if my sugar levels are all over the place, it, it really leads for a bad day on Saturday, which is race day. Um, so it, it's really important I'm eating correct. Um, we try to eat or try to cook most of our food. Uh, we try not to eat out because it's hard to judge what's in food nowadays on outside of what we can make ourselves. Um, so I mean, it's really important for me to have my nutrition to almost to a T. Wow, that's that's pretty inspiring that you learn to cope with that. Um, if if you don't mind, I'd like to ask a couple more personal questions about that. If, if yeah. it's okay, uh, are yeah. you, do you take insulin and and things like that? You yep. or do you monitor it with so so you are on a regular regimen of medication as well? Yeah, uh, I take four insulin shots a day um, for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and at nighttime. So. Um, I have to check my sugar regularly throughout the day. Um, I have to give my obviously insulin doses, um, according to what I eat. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely almost a full-time job on itself. Man, that's a little inspirational right there because you're fighting not only your own body, but you're out there competing against everyone else as well. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, there has been races where, I had not hit it perfect to the T and you you'll see those races. I mean, it, it happens and it's unfortunate and it's part of it, but it sucks too at the same time because we're competing at the highest level and to go out and be 60% isn't what you want to do. Is there any drawback to how hard you can train being a type one diabetic? No, as long as I, I, I'm really, I'm pretty strict on myself with nutrition and my insulin intake and all that kind of stuff. And I really pay attention. So I can train as hard as I want, um, as, as almost anybody. Um, now the race thing, I really have to like be careful with, because obviously if my sugar goes low while I'm out there, I'm, I'm taking a risk of possibly passing out, um, getting injured, stuff like that. So 
we really try to make sure we're real strict on ourselves during race times. Now training, obviously I could take a break from training if I had to and drink some orange juice, that kind of thing um, to get my sugar to go up and then I can get right back after it again. How long does it take from, let's say you had to stop and get something to drink. How long does it take you to, to, I guess, for lack of a better term, recover? Um, if my sugar does go low during a race, most likely I will not recover by the end of the race. Um, what we'll do is we'll, I'll take a drink that has a bunch of sugar in it. Um, and I'll keep going, but I will not be able to compete at my hundred percent like level that I could. Um, obviously it takes, it really takes like four hours to really set in, to be able to, for your body to find, a accumulate your, all your sugars and make it all right. Wow. So it's a bigger deal than, than most people would even realize. I had no idea. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's really important when we go to our national stuff. That's why we, we race so much and we, we try and stuff, um, try all kinds of different stuff, really. Um, we, we, we do have a system that works really good. Um, now it's like anything else. It's, it's, I'm not, I'm a machine to a point. So there's some times where it fails and there's some times where it works perfect. So you, you can always try to judge it as best you can. So like somebody that doesn't have it, they could slough off once in a while, not eating where you yep. have to make sure that, that I have to make sure yep. that you take a food is there period. Yep. Make sure my food intake's good throughout the week. Um, I mean, it, it goes from Monday to Saturday. I mean, that's really important for me. And then even Sunday on recovery day, um, it's important as well. So, I mean, it, it's uh, through the week. I mean, I focused on eating right and stuff like that. Not alone, just training, um, making sure I'm eating the correct things that I need to be eating for the week and stuff like that. Um, when did you figure out that you were a type one diabetic? Was it when you were a baby? Nope. It was actually when I was, uh, it was 2010 when I was nine years old. Really? So, just, so, go ahead. Yep. Something attacked my <laughs> pancreas and my body, um, and essentially killed my pancreas. Um, so I'm fully insulin dependent now. Wow. Wow. That's, that's crazy to, yep. And and you you've got a system down. I'm a little speechless. If you have if you haven't noticed, uh, it's it's because I wasn't prepared for any type of questioning like that. So yep. uh, I'm a little trying to catch up with what I'm hearing. You know, so so you've had a number of years. How old are you now? I'm 22 now. So you've had a number of years to. To, to trial and error, and, yeah, yeah. And did that, have, did that have anything to do with the break that you took from racing? It did. It actually didn't. Um, that uh, because obviously it was in 2010, and we still raced all the way up until 2014, uh, the GNCC series. It didn't really. It didn't affect us really any. Um, obviously, we my parents had to learn it before I even learned it really. So. Obviously, when you're nine years old, you're you don't know what what insulin is. You don't know what any of that stuff is. So, 
my parents learned it and they try they were trial and error in it when I was a kid. Um, and we had a system down pack and every year we get better at it. Um, there's no doubt. We, we, we try to get better every year, um, racing and that kind of stuff. Will, will do you think they'll ever have some type of fix so that you don't have to have insulin? Um, there's talks about it. Um, I don't know if it's going to be in my lifetime or not. Um, there's definitely talks about it. I don't know when it's going to be a thing that's going to be like, this is the answer to solve all your your questions. Um, but there is talks about being able to make it like how I'm like you or whatever, like a, a normal person, I guess you would say. Okay. Okay. So th- these are things that you follow and, and, and check into. Oh yeah. I'm fully invested into my health and stuff like that. I mean, I definitely don't play around with it. I take it as serious as more serious than probably what I take my racing. So. Uh, yeah, because the uh, effects of not doing it are greater than any of yeah. us could ever imagine. For sure. I mean, there's no doubt we, I could go down a road that none of us want to see me go down. I mean, it, it could get really bad really, really quickly. Man. Well, that, I'm, I'm definitely impressed with not only the fact that you go as fast as you do, but with the diabetes and the way that you manage it uh, for a young person. And, and please, this is meant with all due respect because a lot of the young people that I deal with today are not put together and are not, you know, taking care of themselves or taking care of racing like you are. And that's, it's pretty impressive. And, and I just, uh, that's great that you do it that way. Yeah. I appreciate it. I mean, it's really important to me. There's no doubt. What do you see coming in 2024 uh, with some of the new tracks? Are there any new things coming on your program that, that we can look for? Um, really, we had it pretty good in 2023. Um, I mean, my my program for 2023 was really, really good. Um, so for 2024, I mean, there, we don't we don't plan on changing a lot now. There is a few changes that we did do, a um, few shock changes actually before the end of the year. Um, so we we know what we're gonna do for the 24th first season with our shock changes. Um, man, there's really not much. I mean, the same people are, are on, on my folder this season. I mean, I have a lot of people that help me out. And, um, I mean, I think everything should be a go for 2024. You think Can-Am's going to step in and possibly do any support with your guys' series? Um, yes and no. I mean, they... They support um, us a little bit. They do do a little payout for us, but it's nothing really um, crazy. Uh, I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. If the the thing is, is if Polaris comes out with something. If Polaris comes out with something, then I think you'll see a like rivalry uh, get brought up with Can-Am versus Polaris. Um, but that's later down the road. Uh, I don't think Can-Am sees a need to really put any more effort towards it because everybody is running in a Can-Am. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that Can-Am is the machine to be racing on. So I don't see them putting any more effort towards. 
Is Polaris the only other company that makes a thousand cc unit? Um, no, there's actually a lot of companies. Um, I mean, there is there's a definitely a lot of companies out there that make a four by four. Now, race friendly, not many. Polaris is going to be the only one that's going to be able to put forth an effort towards Can Am. Um, I think that would be the only other ATV manufacturer right now that I see uh, that would be be able to battle against Can-Am. Yeah, and it doesn't look like the machine that they're producing, which that, that I take that back. I've heard that there's a new machine coming, but n- nobody knows what it is exactly. Yeah, I've heard sort of the same rumor, too, that there is possibly a Polaris coming out at some point in time. Have not heard what it is or if it's anything good for us. Um, I do know they make a machine now, but it's more, it's not meant for cross country racing, it's more meant for like a desert kind of racing and stuff like that. Yeah, nobody's gonna, nobody's jumping on that bandwagon either to to race in the desert. So we'll we'll see how that breaks down. You know, with a long history in in racing uh, with your family like that. Um, it's it, it, it's awesome that they stick together with you, and that you're even with your health deals. That um, I, I do got to ask this: it, your mom would be the one that would normally be uh, the worry ward, I would assume. Um, how is she with you still racing, and how was she with you racing as uh, being young and having a medical issue? Oh yeah, my. My mom, uh, she's definitely the worrisome of us. Uh, there's no doubt she was definitely worried when I was when I became a type one diabetic and was still wanting to race. Um, she was very, very concerned when I was, especially when I was a kid, because uh, she was doing most of it. Um, she was the one that was checking my blood sugar and doing all that kind of stuff for me and trying to calculate it all in her head and do all that stuff. Um, she was definitely concerned with it. Now she didn't limit me from racing. She she wanted me to go race. She wanted me to do that, um, but she was definitely worried about it. That's good that she didn't stop you from doing it. You know, because you know some parents uh, jump in and don't allow their children to to do things like that. Oh yeah, I mean, I, even me out for me personally, I was scared. Um, obviously, I. Didn't know what I was getting myself into, but now, now I'm 22 years old. Now I know what goes on. Now I know how to control it, what to do, and what to take care of it. Being 22, how long do you see yourself uh, racing? Man, I've I've gotten asked that a few times. Um, it, it, it's a hard question to answer. Um, obviously, we stay healthy, and I have the support uh, that I need to be able to compete. I can see myself racing forever. I'm honestly, uh, so I become old and gray, I guess you would say. Um, but I mean, honestly in the pro division, I don't know. It's hard to answer that question. Um, because you got to stay healthy for one. Um, but then also you got to have some type of support. There's no way you could do the racing that we do by yourself. Um, so if I have the support and I have the funds and able to do it, um, for a long time, let's say that. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, based on uh, if you look at the life expectancy of four wheeler racers, 
you've seen some of the professional guys race into their forties and, you know, on the West coast, Doug Eichner was almost 50 when he retired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, just, just because, I mean, age age is big. I mean, because obviously everybody gets faster. So um, the younger generations obviously push the older guys out um, most of the time. Now, some of the old guys, they can keep on going. But, uh, I mean, for instance, like when I become 30 years old, there's going to be a, a 21 or 22-year-old kid that's going to be faster than me probably. So, I mean, it, this is kind of how the racing scene works, um, just kind of how it happened. Well, it happens in every sport, you know. Yeah. Eventually, you age out. Yeah. I don't know about LeBron James, but. (laughs) Well, if you're a LeBron James fan, yeah. I mean, I still think Michael Jordan could come back and smoke him, but that's just me. I guess you could say. I mean, I stopped watching basketball when Michael Jordan retired. Yeah. Yeah. Kobe was good, but. You know, Kobe and Shaq just were never that didn't for for me. And we're talking ATVs now. <laughs> you yeah. know, those two guys just never had the allure. And I have never been a Le- LeBron James fan. It just it just doesn't have the the same yeah same feel for you. It's not the same professionalism. Yeah, yeah. You know, and obviously, I didn't know the MJ era. So basketball is actually my second favorite sport. So we could talk basketball almost all day. That brings me to the the reason why the podcast was started was because young guys like you don't know all of the history of where the sport came from and where it's evolved to. And I'm trying to bring some of the older guys back that have been doing it longer than I have. Yep. And having them tell the story of the of the grassroots when it really started when, when, you know, back before Honda got involved, when it was three wheelers. Yeah. Um, and w- w- you know, uh, next week, Mike Kobe back on last week, uh, you know, Stevie Wright, you know, one of the old factory Honda guys was on. Um, we also have a three wheeler story coming out tomorrow on our really? YouTube. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting to always learn about that kind of stuff. Well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to toot my horn here a little bit back. If you go back to episode three on the podcast, the third episode I ever did, it's with my dad. Okay. And it talks about going to the Honda intro in 1969 when they first brought the U S 90 to the, to the States. Yeah. So that's cool. It, yep. was, it was really great having you on. And uh, next time, let's hope it doesn't take a year. Oh, yeah. We'll try to get, try to make this happen a little bit more often. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Hey, good luck in 2024, brother. Hey, thank you. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org 
or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. If you're in need of a consultation for your current racing program, a custom ATV, or an industry guest speaker, I have the company for you. Duncan Technologies International Inc. offers host, MC, and guest speaking services at events. Builds custom ATVs for recreational riding or racing around the world. And they offer consulting services for professional teams or individual racers. Send inquiries to Duncan Tech International at gmail.com or call 619-716-1532 for more information. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms and you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter. 